please turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. And as you're turning there, I want you to just use your imaginations with me for a minute this morning. I want you to imagine Donald Trump running for president (laughs) as a Democrat. Imagine Bill Gates using a Mac. Imagine the Longhorns winning the national title. Hard to imagine, isn't it? Imagine the Ayatollah of Iran becoming a Christian and preaching Jesus Christ. Could happen, couldn't it? It's hard to imagine, though. It takes such a radical transformation. Imagine a person that you know who seems so very far away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, trusting in Christ, embracing God's plan for his life or her life, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ with power and passion and effectiveness. Imagine that person turning from where they are and moving toward Jesus. Maybe that's you this morning. Somehow you just stumbled in here and you say, I can't even imagine that God could love me. Maybe this morning you did bring in a burden. It was a burden of of shame and guilt. You're not really even sure why God has brought you here. You're the exact person that Jesus Christ died for. Or maybe you say to yourself, well, I know that Jesus loves me and I know he died for me, but I can't even imagine that he could use me in any significant way because of the choices I've made or the things that were done to me. God gave us the story of the Apostle Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus but became Paul the Apostle. He gave us that story to prove this very point. If God can do it in Paul's life, then God can do it in your life. And God can do it in your friend's life or your family's life, who seems so very far away from Jesus Christ. If God can do it for Paul, God can do it for you. So we're going to look at the story of Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. We're going to look at that first moment when God grabbed him, got his attention. I want you to begin by turning back with me to chapter 7, where we are first introduced by Luke, to Saul of Tarsus. Acts chapter 7, end of the chapter, beginning in verse 54. And as we look at Saul's story, I want you to ask yourself, do you believe that God can do this for me? Do you believe that God can do this for your friend, for your family member? Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at Stephen. But being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice. They covered their ears and they rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. 
But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. And then we're told of the story of what happened in the church. The church persecuted, the church scattered. As it's scattered, it begins to preach. The apostles stay behind, and we shouldn't think that they stayed behind out of fear. They stayed behind out of courage. This was the center of persecution, and yet they chose to stay, to hold the church in Jerusalem together. But others went out, and they began to preach. We looked at the story uh, last week of, of Philip, who went down to Samaria, and the gospel now is going to this outcast group of people, Samaritans, and then he's moved quickly down to the, the Gaza area along the coastline and he gets to preach to an Ethiopian official in Candace's court and the gospel is able to move down toward northern Africa. The gospel is going out even in spite of persecution and then Luke returns us to the story of Paul in chapter 9. Now Saul, now, really, now literally, now, now back to Saul. What was happening with him? He was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord And he went to the high priest. He asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Who was Saul of Tarsus? There are three significant facts about Saul that I want to remind you of this morning. The first is this. Saul was a Roman citizen. Saul had citizenship in the Roman Empire, which is somewhat unusual for a Jew. Acts chapter 22, Luke records, the commander came and he said to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman? Paul said, yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. Paul said, that's nothing. I was actually born a citizen. I was born a citizen. How is it that a Jew could be born a citizen? Well, apparently somewhere back in Paul's lineage, one of his Jewish relatives rendered some great service to the Roman empire and his family was granted Roman citizenship. Paul was a Roman. He had all the rights of Roman citizenship. We also learned that Paul was born in a Roman city in Asia Minor. He said, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. In fact, Tarsus in Asia Minor was on a major trade route and actually was a major trade city all the way back to the time of Abraham. It was also a city, a city that really valued education. It said that the, the population as a whole valued education and the educational level in Tarsus actually exceeded that of Alexandria and Athens. So Paul was born, in a sense, in a university town. We could consider it the college station of Asia Minor back in the first century, right? High level of education, Roman citizenship. But more importantly for Paul, so I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, which is much more significant than simply saying I was racially, ethnically a Jew, was a Hebrew among Hebrews. Philippians chapter three, verse five. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, raised in a family that kept the law, born in a Roman city in Asia Minor, but his family stayed Jewish in their culture. The culture in his home was thoroughly Jewish, whereas most Jews went to synagogues where the Old Testament was read in Greek and they were influenced by Greek culture. Paul's family did not do that. Paul was familiar with Greek culture. He understood Greek culture. He even spoke the Greek language, but he was thoroughly Jewish. His family kept the law, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, 
Most families, or many families at least, lost their tribal affiliation when the Jews were scattered during the diaspora. But this family of Benjamites, they kept their tribal identity. In fact, it was so important to them that they named their son after the most important man who came from this tribe, Saul, first king of Israel. But even beyond that, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Among the Hebrews, he rose to the top. And among the Hebrews, he rose even further. A Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul would say in Acts chapter 23, verse 6, Brethren, I'm a Pharisee, son of Pharisees, which could mean that his father is a Pharisee. More likely, what it meant was, of all the Pharisees, I'm the most Pharisaical. Three significant groups in the religious world in Paul's day, in the Jewish community. The Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Pharisees. Sadducees were the ones who really believed strongly in free will. Free will and man's responsibility. They denied the resurrection. There was no physical bodily resurrection. The hope that we have after life is a hope that we will leave a legacy behind. No hope in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They really didn't believe in the spiritual realm. They were, in that sense, very materialistic people. In fact, they were generally wealthy and powerful. They formed the vast majority of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of the day. Opposite extreme of that was the Essenes, who saw Judaism generally being corrupted and certainly the priesthood and the temple as being corrupted by the Sadducees. And so they separated themselves. They lived in separate or monastic communities. And their emphasis was on the sovereignty of God. And they saw God in his sovereignty eventually stepping in and wiping out all those who were polluting true religion. And then there was the Pharisees. The name Pharisee actually comes from a word that means separate They saw most of the Jewish population as lawbreakers and sinners. The word sinner for them didn't refer to Gentiles. They had no use for Gentiles whatsoever. Sinner meant a Jewish person who wasn't living according to the law. They decided to live separately within society, but very different from the people around them. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in angels. They believed in demons. They believed in the spiritual realm. They were a minority And they were, in a sense, proud of their minority status. Paul says, among the Pharisees, I was the most Pharisaical of them all. How did he get to that point? Living according to the strictest application of the law. He says, Galatians chapter 1, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral conditions. Paul was spiritually competitive. What he valued in life, he wanted to be the absolute best at. And apparently that's what drove his family as well. They put him in the school of Gamaliel. Say in Acts chapter 22, I'm a Jew educated at the feet of Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. Gamaliel was the most prestigious rabbi of Paul's day. So Paul's family had to be wealthy and they had to be influential for Paul to be able to study at the feet of Gamaliel. It would be like a, a physics major studying under Stephen Hawking, right? Or business major studying under Warren Buffett. This is it. Of all that Paul valued in the world, as a young man, he had already reached the pinnacle. Paul had arrived. He had Roman citizenship. He could travel anywhere in the world under all the protections and privileges as a Roman citizen. He was born in a Greek-speaking Roman city, so he understood 
Greek culture. In fact, Gamaliel was kind of liberal in his application of certain principles, and he encouraged all of his students to understand Greek language and Greek literature. So Paul understood the world of his day, but he was also thoroughly Jewish. He knew the law. He had memorized enormous portions of the law. He understood theology, and he lived, he would say, in Philippians chapter 3, a life that was blameless before the law. Paul had everything that he could possibly want as a young man. And he hated Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 1 again. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. Can you imagine hating a group of people, individuals that you've never met? Imagine hating a group of people so much that you make it your mission in life to kill them, to destroy them. Imagine hating people that much. See, we think of Paul the Apostle. We need to step back from time to time to remember Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was a genuinely evil man because on the outside there was so much righteousness, but it was self-righteousness. Internally, there was anger and hatred and pride. And Paul would even acknowledge later lust and fear. Paul was an evil, evil man. And the story of Apostle Paul is given to us to remind us that if God can do it in Paul's life, then God can do it in our lives as well. How is it that God could take a man like this and utterly and completely transform him? I want you to read with me again. Acts chapter 9. Let's move down to verse 3. As Paul was traveling... It happened that as he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. He was there three days without sight, and he neither ate nor did he drink. This is an overwhelming experience for Paul. Uh, We're told in uh, chapter 22 as he relates the story that actually the light came to him at noonday. The sun was out, and the light was so bright, it was brighter than the sun. It was a light that was so bright that it physically knocked him down. And we don't know if Paul was walking, or if he was riding a donkey, or if he was riding a horse. We don't know. But all of the great Renaissance artists pictured him on a horse. Because I think the metaphor that was in their minds was Paul had to be taken down from his high horse, right? From his place of arrogance down to the ground. So if you look at all of these Renaissance articles or, or, or artists, what you see is Paul laying on the ground and a horse standing beside him blinded at noonday by this light. And we say, well, you know, I've never had an experience like that. How can I relate? Well, fortunately, most of us don't need that kind of experience for God to get our attention. But Paul needed an experience like that because of who Paul was. You think of yourself, God can't reach me. Paul was worse. Paul was worse. And if God can do this in Paul's life, God can do it in your life. And so God comes, sends his son Jesus, and he meets Paul on the road, and he casts him to the ground, and Paul asks that most important question, who are you? Who are you? 
Because he doesn't know. All that he knows is this one who has just thrown him down is great and powerful and beautiful and glorious. Who are you, Lord? Jesus answers, I'm, I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Notice the connection that Jesus makes between himself and his people. You're persecuting me because you're persecuting my people. My people belong to me. I am Jesus. Paul asks that absolutely most important question. It is the most important question in the entire universe. Because there is no more important person than Jesus Christ. Who are you, Lord? Who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? Who is he? I remember C.S. Lewis really wrestled with this question. And he would say later that he was dragged, kicking and screaming into the kingdom because he didn't like the answer that he'd arrived at. He didn't like the fact that it was unescapable to him that Jesus was the son of God. And he reasoned like this, you remember? He said either Jesus was the son of God or he was not the son of God. We only have these two options. He was the son of God or he was not the son of God. And if he was not the son of God and he knew he was not the son of God, then he is simply a liar. But if he was not the son of God and he didn't know, then he's a lunatic. Okay, on the level, Lewis would say, of a man who claims to be a poached egg. On the other hand, he could be the son of God. Because if you look at his life, he doesn't behave like a man who's a pathological liar, nor does he behave like a man who's lost his mind. And Lewis was left with just one option. He is, in fact, the son of God. He is who he says he is. It's the most important question that any person ever asks and answers. Who is Jesus? Back in the 1740s, there was a man named Baron George Littleton of England. He went with his friend Gilbert West to Oxford. They went together to prove that Christianity was false. That Jesus was not the son of God. They went to study all the claims of Christ and to demonstrate, to write, a, to write a book. And to prove to the world that Christ's claims were false. In the process, they became Christians. And for George Littleton, one of the pieces of evidence that proved most powerful was the transformation of the Apostle Paul. He would ra- later write this. I thought the conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone, duly considered, was of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity a divine revelation. See, he he studied the entire story, and when he got to the Apostle Paul, and he really reckoned, reckoned with who Paul was and who Paul became, he said something genuine, something real happened to the Apostle Paul on that day. A man who had absolutely everything, right? He had wealth, and he had power, and he had acclaim. He, everything that he wanted in his world, he possessed, even as a young man. He could only go up, and yet he abandoned all of that. In fact, in Philippians, he would say, all of those things I count as skubala in Greek, which is a euphemism for human excrement. I'm just not saying it so you don't feel uncomfortable this morning, but you know exactly what Paul wrote in the Bible. (laughs) It's one of the cuss words in the Bible. It is skubala. He said, I count all of those things that seem like great benefits as human excrement compared to knowing Christ. And Littleton said, in light of that alone, that transformation, this man who would then give his life to Jesus Christ, literally he would suffer, continually suffer, and then die for Christ. If God can do that in that man's life, 
God must be real. Christ must be real. And so what happened for Paul on that day is God changed his mind. He had rejected Christ and seen him as a criminal deserving death and all of his people as blasphemers. And 180 degrees different. After seeing Jesus on the Damascus Road. I want you to hold your place here in Acts 9 and turn back with me to the letter of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And verse 12. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. He wrote, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and the love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. See what Paul's doing? He he just loved to tell his story. And he told his story over and over and over again. He said, I'm going to even tell you how horrible I was before so that you realize if God can do it for me, God can do it for you. He says, in fact, you need to understand if someone could look actually deep inside of my heart, they would recognize that I'm the foremost of sinners. And if he can do it for the foremost, he can do it for you. And he finishes this brief testimony and what does he do? He just breaks out in worship. He says, wow, to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen, man. Paul just says, when I think about my story, I just have to worship I just have to stand amazed at what God has done in my life. And I say, praise you, God, that you changed me. Praise you, God, that you rescued me. Praise you that you illuminated my mind and and brought me to truth. One of my closest friends in seminary was a man from India. His name was Baburao Pimplekar. He had an amazing testimony. He was raised in a Hindu home. He was raised literally worshiping idols, washing the idols, bathing them daily, bowing down before them, praying before the idols. And one day, he was in his late teens, he had a vision. And in his vision, he fell asleep and he was sitting underneath a tree. And a man walked up to him and he handed him a scroll. And Babu opened the scroll and as he began to read the scroll, he realized it was a a chronicle, a list of all of his sins, even the ones he had told no one. And he began reading these and he began to weep and cry and he realized, I will be put to death. My list is so long, it is so profound, the sin that I have committed against the gods. And he was weeping and weeping under the tree. And he said in his dream, a man came up to him and he said, why are you weeping? Babu said, I'm weeping because I must die for my sins. And the man said to him, do you not realize I died for those? And he realized later it was Jesus. Jesus had died for him. And it changed his life. It changed his life. Paul would write later in the book of Romans, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel and the gospel alone is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the power that can change your mind about who Jesus is and point you to the one savior that is Christ. And it can change the way that you live 
and the reason that you live. It can change everything about your life. In fact, it's the only thing that can change your life. How did that happen for Paul? Read with me again Acts chapter 9. Go back there, Acts chapter 9, and let's continue on in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. So Ananias departed. He entered the house. After laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he got up and he was baptized. Then he took food and he was strengthened. Ananias was, uh, he was afraid. <laughs> he, was, he said, Jesus, you sure you got that name right? Saul. Um, you know, his reputation has already preceded him all the way to Damascus. He has uh, extradition letters from the chief priests. He is, he's tying people up and he's, he's dragging them back to Jerusalem. And they are being imprisoned and they're losing all of their property and they're separated from their family. And some are even being stoned and put to death. He, he's, he's killing us. Jesus says, I know. So Ananias goes. Wow, uh, we don't talk enough about Ananias. What courage, what faith. He goes. And notice the first words that he says. Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Enemies have become not just friends, but enemies have now become family. Brother Saul. Saul, I acknowledge, you're you're a different man. Brother Saul. Romans chapter 5, Paul would write, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. See, Ananias didn't move. Ananias didn't change. Paul changed. And so God could reconcile them. Uh, Jesus didn't change. Paul changed. And so they were reconciled. They were brought back together. Paul, still a sinner, God went after him. Paul, an enemy, God went after him. Because that's who God is. God loves sinners. God loves his enemies. God loves those who hate him and reject him. God reaches out to them and reconciles them back to him. And when that happens, the entire identity of a person is changed. You become a new person in Christ. You are no longer the same person the moment that you believe. A few years ago, I knew a high school kid who was uh, continuously trying to change his identity. Right? He would, uh, each time I saw him over a period of several months, he looked different. He was dressed differently. Uh, for a while, he was a skater. He's hanging out with all the skaters. So he, his hair looked like a skater, his clothes looked like a skater, everything was skater. He carried a skateboard everywhere. I don't even know if he could, he could ride it, but he, he just, you know, skaters. I'm a skater. Right? And then a few months later, he was, he was a preppy. 
kind of, I mean, everything had changed. He was, you know, straight leg and got his hair, straight leg pants and haircut. I mean, just buttoned down. He looked really sharp and snappy. His parents loved that look, actually. They were, they were fans of that. And then a few months later, he was, uh, he showed up. He had a, a cowboy hat on. He was wearing boots, boot cut jeans. I thought, man, your wardrobe is expensive. But nothing ever changed on the inside for him. Because on the inside, there was just one thing that kept driving him, and that was he wanted to be accepted. He wanted to be loved. And he was looking for a group who would do that for him. And so nothing actually ever changed on the inside. It all just changed on the outside. For Paul, it was just the opposite. Nothing changed on the outside. I don't know that he trimmed his beard or cut his hair or got a new robe or tassels. He looked exactly the same. But everything changed on the inside. Because now Paul moved from a man who thought he loved God, but really loved himself. To a man who genuinely loved God. A man who really hated Jesus Christ. To a man who loved Jesus Christ. A man who hated the people of Jesus Christ. A man who loved the people of Jesus Christ. Everything inside of him changed. Second Corinthians chapter 5, Paul will describe that transformation. He says this, Therefore, if any man, anyone, any person, any woman, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Paul turned from self-righteousness to embracing just the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The moment that you believe, you are changed. Even if you don't feel changed, you are changed. Paul's very first letter that he would ever write to any churches, Galatians chapter 2, he wrote this beautiful verse. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The moment that you believe, the most fundamental part of your identity is how you are related to Jesus Christ. Paul's not saying, uh, I I lost all identity of Paul and got absorbed into some general sense of God. (laughs) What he's saying is, no, the most important thing about me now is the fact that Jesus died and I died with him. And so the power of sin and death no longer reigns over me because I am in Christ. And I love how very personally he makes this because in so many of his letters, he talks about the fact that God loves you and God loves us. But in this verse, he says, he loved me. He gave himself up for me. He cares about me. He wants to change me. He will change me, Paul says. And you can insert your name into that. God loves you. Christ died for you. Christ can change you. Will you always feel that way? No. We always behave that way? No, because we drag old patterns of behavior into our new life in Christ. And that's what the power of the Spirit begins to do for us, progressively make us more and more and more like Jesus. And only God has the power to do that. You know, uh, St. Augustine is apparently the one who wrote the first autobiography in, in human history, and he's very transparent in his autobiography. He talks about this incredibly immoral lifestyle that he led before knowing Jesus Christ, how he left the faith of his mother and he lived for pleasure. And he goes on later in his biography and he talks about a time when he was, uh, shortly after he trusted in Christ, he was walking through the streets of Milan and a woman with whom he had had an immoral relationship in the past, she came up behind him and she whispered and she said, Augustine, it is I. 
And he stopped for a moment and all, all the, the shame and the guilt that he had carried from those past relationships and even the temptation began to well up again. But then he stopped and he thought for a moment and he said, yes, but it is no longer I. <laughs> and if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can say that. Yes, but it is no longer I. You do not have to say yes to sin and death any longer because you are in Jesus Christ. Yes, but it is no longer I. See, this moment of transformation totally turned Paul's life. It changed his identity, and as a result, it changed his behavior. No longer is he a persecutor of the church, he is a preacher of the church. No longer is he bringing suffering on others. Instead, he's willing to suffer and even die for this gospel that he once condemned. Read with me again, chapter 9, verse 15. The Lord said to Ananias, Go. Go, because Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Go, for he is, he's literally, it's a container that's designed for a specific purpose. Paul has been designed. Paul is unique. Paul, Paul is special. There's a purpose for his life. And I have designed that purpose from all of eternity. And Paul is just now beginning to step into that reality in his experience. So notice what happens. Verse 19. It says, now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed. And they were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. Two words I want you to notice in that paragraph. Immediately and increasing. Immediately, Paul gets to work on his calling in life. New mission. New purpose. New reason for living. Paul's eyesight has recovered He's got a little food in him, and he says, let's go. Let's go. Let's go into the synagogues and let's preach Jesus immediately. And with every fresh confrontation, it says he is increasing in his strength, his ability to prove the point that Jesus is Messiah. Paul is a different man. Paul is a a transformed man. A great commentator, F.F. Bruce, wrote in his commentary on Acts, he said, No single event, apart from the Christ event itself, has proved so determinate for the course of Christian history as the conversion and commissioning of Paul. Paul would plant the church throughout Asia Minor. He would plant the church into Europe. He would bring the gospel even to Rome itself, the capital of the empire. Paul would write almost half of the New Testament. He would lay the foundation for all of the most important theology that we understand in the New Testament. Salvation by grace through faith, the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, who is Jesus and what has he done? And what is this thing called the church? And then he would suffer and he would die for Jesus. He would suffer imprisonment and beatings, even stoning, being left for dead. He would suffer shipwreck and hunger and thirst. And he would say, it's nothing. It's nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us because I saw that glory, just a glimpse of that glory on the Damascus road and just that momentary glimpse was enough to prove to me that living for Jesus Christ is worth all sacrifices. I count it all as rubbish so that I may gain Jesus Christ. 
Any of you um, still like doing puzzles? Yeah, dot to dot. I love dot to dot. Problem is my kids are old enough now. I go to the restaurant and I have to actually ask for my own. You know, they don't bring them because kids are getting older. So can I, can I have some crayons? Because I, I like to doodle. I like to draw and I like the puzzles and the crosswords. I like the dot to dot. Um, but I've learned as I've gotten older, they're just really not that challenging. You know, um, it's just something to kind of occupy my hands. Because now I'm old enough, I've seen enough dot to dot that I can actually just, I just look at the image and I go, I know, I know what that is. I can tell that's Jesus. Sort of, right? I just, I see the, the image that the dots form because I have enough experience looking at dot to dot in my life. Which I think is a really nice metaphor for life itself. When you're down in the weeds of life and you're just moving along to the next dot, right? It gets a little discouraging. What's the picture that's being painted here? What's, what's the point? Why am I moving to this next dot? Where am I going? And then as we get older and we've seen enough of those dots connected, we, we're able to step out of, in a sense, our own life and look at our life and begin to see, oh, wait, 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 God is drawing this beautiful picture here. And I can trust him confidently. I can take a step on that next dot because I know that God is leading me to a wonderful and a beautiful place. I trust him. I trust him. I've got perspective. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul wrote this. He said, God set me apart even from my mother's womb so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. In other words, Paul said, okay, now I get it. I look back and I realize that even from the point of birth, even before time began, God had sketched out a plan for my life. And that God had a purpose for my life. And that God would use all of these blessings toward that purpose. Being raised in this Jewish home and understanding Jewish theology and speaking Hebrew. Being born in a a Roman city. Understanding Greek and Greek literature and culture. God would use all those things. God would redeem all of my evil and hard things for that same purpose. God would redeem redeem my self-righteousness. God would redeem my participation in murder. God would redeem even the shame and the guilt that I felt from those things for a purpose. God caused me to be born for a purpose. God caused me to be raised in this particular situation for a purpose. God allowed me to have these experiences and even allowed me to make these choices, some good, some bad, for a purpose. God was transforming me for a purpose. And God knew, and I can trust him, and I can walk in that path. Because God made me and shaped me and gave all of these experiences to me so that I could be a bold and courageous witness for Jesus Christ so that others could come to know him. I can trust him with my life. My question for us this morning is simply this. Do you trust God with your life? Are you able to step back a little bit and get some perspective and see, okay, no, God, God was in control. God was in charge. God was moving and shaping and directing. And he was drawing this beautiful picture, which is my life, for a purpose. And I trust him with that. And I believe him for that. I'd like you to take a few moments again. Let's go before the Lord and let's ask Jesus. If you don't have that, that vision, that sense of what God has made you for, ask God to speak directly into your mind and into your heart. And if you're beginning to get that sense to embrace it and say, God, I trust you with my life. Trust you with everything that I am. I give it all to you. Let's take a few moments, just silently before the Lord, ask God to speak individually, directly to each one of us. And then we'll close.
stand with me while we pray? After the service, we have some folks uh, down front who would love to pray with you. If there's, maybe there's a, a burden that you walked in with this morning, uh, a shame or guilt, and you, gosh, I, I have no idea how God could possibly redeem this and use this in a positive way. Uh, let's take advantage of, of these folks who are here and ready to pray for you. Or maybe uh, you, you had a moment where you uh, felt like God is calling you to uh, a little more publicly give your life and surrender to Jesus Christ his purposes, his mission for your life. You'd like to tell someone, have someone pray with you about that decision. Again, please come up afterwards. Father, we we are standing because we are uh, acknowledging before you that um, you own all. You made us, you designed us, you redeemed us, you purchased us for yourself. And Father, we make foolish decisions and try to figure out meaning for our own lives when it's been given to us through your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, we would have boldness and confidence to trust you in this. I pray, Father, that we would leave here men and women who are courageous witnesses for Jesus Christ, men and women who are transformed in the way that we live and the choices that we make, men and women who acknowledge because we are identified with Jesus Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin and death. Instead, we're slaves to righteousness through him. Father, I thank you that you're committed to our transformation, and I thank you that you will continue that process It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.